Thank you for joining us today on this Good Friday, Westridge, and all those that are looking in. This is a year unlike any other, but it is so crucial that we take just a few moments together and to remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross on that Friday. In just a few moments, we're gonna be sharing communion together. So if you have some elements that you've already got prepared, some crackers, some juice, or, or if you don't have those things, run and go get them and, and bring them. That's gonna be part of my talk today, a few moments where we share in that communion. And then also, we're just gonna be giving you a few visuals today that are gonna help you, hopefully, to really imagine with your mind's eye what may have been happening in and around Jerusalem during those days when Jesus was crucified. I really do, with all that's going on, I really do want you to just take a few moments and to slow down and to look at Jesus. That's what he invites us to do. In John chapter 6, verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Could we, for just a few moments, look at Jesus? In fact, this word that he uses for look is not just about taking a glance or just skimming by. There's so much in our world today that's really just about kind of going by quickly, right? If you write an article for a blog post or even if you're reading a, a page on the internet, it's designed to be skimmable. It's designed for us to just go by it as quickly as we can. I mean, we're, we're tapping stories on different social media things just to make them go by as quickly as we can. We're tweeting 280 characters or less. TikTok has, give, has gone from six seconds to 15. They've given us a whole 15 seconds now. That's really amazing. But so much in our world is just going by so, so quickly. But Jesus invites us to look at him. And to look at him is to not just to glance, but the word that he uses, and sometimes it's translated as behold, really means to take a few moments and to gaze at him. In fact, the word can also mean experience or partake, which is what we're going to do when we take communion in just a few moments. It's this whole idea of looking at Jesus that begins his earthly ministry when his cousin, John the Baptist, sees him coming to be baptized on that day and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In our mind's eye today, let's slow everything else down. Let's set everything else aside. This is such a weighty season. We're hearing of numbers every single day, of hundreds of people dying just from this coronavirus. People are losing jobs, people are having hours cut back. I know that many of you watching this today are struggling. Charles Spurgeon years ago said to look to Jesus and be lightened. Truly, throughout history, writers have said things about distractions and about how busy their world was. I wonder what they would think about all the things that we have today. I mean, even in these quarantine days, it feels more distracting sometimes than ever before. So we're going to slow everything down and we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to cast our burdens on him and be lightened today. He cares for you. So we're going to begin by remembering what happened that night on that upper room. It's Good Friday. And Friday on a Jewish day, begins actually the night before. The day begins at sundown. So when you consider what Jesus went through on that Friday, it actually begins for us on what we would call Thursday night. And it was sometime on Thursday afternoon that Jesus sent a couple of his disciples into Jerusalem to find a place where he could have the Passover. 
And he said to them, go into a part of the city where you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water. This is, there was only one part of the city where that would have been happening because of the beliefs of a certain sect of people that lived in Jerusalem called the Essenes. And they happened to live in what was referred to as the upper part of Jerusalem. So every room would have been an upper room. Yes, it may have been on a second story and upstairs, but it really doesn't matter. The disciples go into Jerusalem, and sure enough, they find someone carrying a pitcher of water. And you know that that person already has a room fully furnished and fully prepared for a Passover meal. Can you imagine what they must have been thinking or talking about later on when they realized that the meal that they had prepared was actually used by Jesus and his disciples? You know, you never know how your preparation for things in life the things that you do, you never know how Jesus might use those things. And certainly he and his disciples used this upper room in the city for the Passover meal that night. That's what he was doing. He wanted to take this last Passover meal with his disciples before his betrayal, before his arrest, before all that was about to unfold. And so with all of the elements of Passover sitting around, things that they had been celebrating and remembering for centuries, all the way back to the Exodus from Egypt, with all of that around, Jesus stops at some point in the meal and he stands and he takes some bread. Now, before he breaks the bread and before he pours the cup and before we do that, as believers in Jesus, it's important that we acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, the scriptures tell us later on after this moment, the instructions we're given for taking communion are these. This moment is for believers. This moment is for people who are certain they've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have children sitting around with you today, this is a great teaching moment, but maybe not the best one for them to actually participate with you. If you don't know Christ today, I want to invite you to just look in on this and maybe understand the meaning fresh and new. And I hope by the end of my talk today that it will mean something to you personally. There's something else that we're encouraged to do. We are encouraged to take a few moments and to confess any sin that might be in our lives. So now I just want to invite you to take a moment right where you are, to bow your head, and to just go before God, to thank him for sending Jesus, to thank him for all that we're about to talk about in just a few moments, but also if there's anything in your life that needs to be confessed to him, if there's any relationship that needs to be made right, that you'll commit to him that you are going to make it right. Can we take just a few moments and pray? And I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father God, we come before you right now so grateful that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. And as we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, Lord, we want to take just a few moments and invite you to look into our hearts lay things onto our hearts and our minds that may be in the way of us being able to walk with you as fully as we want to and as fully as you want for us to. God, we confess any sin that might be in the way. We lay aside every weight right now and we put all of our attention on Jesus. God, thank you for this moment that we can share together across platforms, across states, across countries, all around the world. We pause today with so many others, and we remember our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I would imagine as Jesus stood at that table in that upper room, 
And as he began to break that bread, hopefully some light bulbs were beginning to go off in the minds of the disciples. Hopefully they were starting to understand just a little bit, although I'm not really sure they did, what Jesus was doing. So he took that element of bread from Passover and he broke it and he gave to them and he said, take, eat, this is my body. I wanna invite you right now to break off a, a piece of cracker or a piece of bread, however you are sharing this moment. And when you're ready, take that to remember the body that was broken for you. Now also, hopefully you have a, a cup nearby with some juice or, or something that will help you remember the blood of Jesus that was shed. As he was standing there that night, he took the cup that would have already been at the table for Passover, one of the cups, and he said to them, this is the blood of a new covenant. That alone means so much, something brand new that God was doing in this moment and would be doing the next day and certainly a few days later. When you are ready to drink from the cup, take just a moment and do that. And so what do you talk about right after this moment? What do you talk about right after, hopefully you begin to realize that this Passover really was all about Jesus and the sacrifice that he was about to make. I mean, previously it had been looking back at the Exodus, but now for us, it's about looking back to him and it's also about looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back again and rules on this earth. But what do you talk about in those moments? The disciples, this is unbelievable to me, the disciples enter into a conversation as they walk out of that room, maybe while they're still in the room, about who is the greatest. I mean, talk about being distracted. Now, to be clear, they weren't talking about whether or not Jesus was the greatest. They were talking about which one of them was the greatest. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can get distracted and why it's so important that we take just even a few moments now to consider what Jesus has done for us? And sure enough, that's what they did. And, and Jesus, of course, gave them some coaching and, and talked with them about what it meant to be a, a servant and that the greatest of all would be the one who serves. That's how Jesus took that moment. But they got so distracted and then together, as he focused their attention, they walked to the Mount of Olives. I wanted you to see what this looks like. I've been on this site several times. It's such a, a beautiful place. The Bible tells us that Jesus often went to this place and it would have looked different in his day. There would have been a, a temple there that he would have seen that had been built, a, a second temple. But he loved this point as a place of overlooking the city. And then all together they would sing a hymn, just as we have worshiped together today. And unfortunately, they didn't have highest praise yet. We'll be singing that in eternity later on. But they took just a moment and they just sang, I'm sure, from one of the Psalms. And then they began to descend down the Mount of Olives and they went into a garden. This was a garden that Jesus also went to many times. In fact, it was how Judas knew where to lead the soldiers who would be arresting Jesus in just a few moments. But this walled garden, this beautiful place, was somewhere that Jesus often got away to, to pray. I mean, from this vantage point, you can actually see the, the Eastern Gate there in Jerusalem, somewhere where Jesus will, the gate that Jesus will return to one day. But this garden is filled with these huge olive trees. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. 
A Gethsemane is something that was used to press the olives and to get the oil out. This is truly the garden of pressing. And Jesus says to his disciples, stay here to a majority of them. And then to Peter, James, and John, he says, come with me a little further. And he gives them a place to kneel and pray. And then he goes even just a little bit further. When I had the opportunity to be in this garden, I couldn't help but just take a moment and just kneel the base of one of those trees. And I know it wasn't a tree that was there when Jesus was there, but these are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it's just overwhelming to think about what he was thinking about in those moments. In fact, he went and he prayed and he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be passed from me. The last time I spoke on this, I I had a friend who hasn't been walking with Jesus very long who actually asked me, he said, what's in the cup? And so I want to let you know what's in the cup. The cup that Jesus is talking about symbolizes the wrath of God that's actually about to be poured out on Jesus on the cross for your sins and mine. All of our sins about to be heaped on his shoulders. And Jesus says, Father, is there some other way? And then he prays the most faith-filled, most difficult, but most incredible prayer any of us could ever pray. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Oh man, there's so many things that we're praying about in these days. But with everything that we pray, we should lead it off or punctuate it with those words. Not my will, God, but your will be done. We trust you. We know that you're in charge. Even when it looks like the whole world is falling apart, we know that you've got us. That's what that means. And so when Jesus got done praying those words, sure enough, he stood and there were some lights in the background. The clanging of armor and the stomps of soldiers' feet. And they enter the garden with Judas at the head and he comes over and he gives Jesus just a a quick kiss on the cheek. And that was the signal. And in that moment, it just went berserk. I mean, I can't imagine the the pandemonium, the fear that the disciples had in that moment. Peter actually reached for a sword and cut off someone's ear. Jesus healed that ear, but right after that, the disciples just scattered. They fled because if Jesus was being arrested, they would be arrested as well. That garden of beauty and peace and prayer became so disrupted on that night. And then Jesus is led away He's led away to the the father-in-law of the high priest during those days. And that father-in-law ultimately hands him over to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas and the other religious leaders, they they mock him, they, they punch him, they challenge him because Jesus has declared that he is the son of man, the son of God. And for them, that is, of course, absolute blasphemy. But it is Passover. Now we're going all the way through the night And they want him dead, but in order for it to happen, they need the help of the Romans. And so they take Jesus to Pilate. Just consider all the chaos that's going on really in the middle of the night as Jesus is being led through the city. Certainly people are waking up. Certainly people are finding out what's going on. Jesus is taken to Pilate. Pilate, as a Roman governor, is probably really annoyed to be woken up in the middle of the night by these Jewish religious leaders who explained to him, in our minds, he's done something worthy of death, but we can't kill him. We need you to do it 
for us. Pilate doesn't want to do it, but he still, in order to appease them, decides that he's going to punish him. And so he has Jesus beaten. As we know, he would have been beaten with that Roman cat of nine tails. It would have just ripped his skin on his back apart. There were no rules for how many times that they could beat a Jewish citizen. We have no idea how many times he was hit and lashed that night. Most people, it would have killed them. But Jesus is led back to Pilate. They put a robe over him. They twist a crown of thorns. Some Roman soldiers twist a crown of thorns. They beat it into his head with reeds, the Bible says. And then Pilate stands him up in front of a crowd that has gathered and says, Behold the man. That's what we're doing in this moment. This is really, I think, about the only thing that Pilate would have said that I can say we should also do. is just to look at him. What does it mean for you in your mind's eye to look and consider a beaten Jesus with a crown of thorns, with people mocking him? We don't look away. We don't just glance. It's too important. But we look at him. They take him from that point after the crowd gets really riled up and they tell Pilate exactly what they want. They say, we want him taken away. Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Jesus is led beyond the gates of the city to a hillside. Oh, that path from that pavement there in Jerusalem out to that place of the skull called Golgotha, we know it as the way of sorrow, the way of suffering. Maybe you've heard the term the Via Dolorosa, it's called. This isn't a term that you'll find in the Bible, but it's the path that we know where people who are being executed by the governor would have been taken. I want to show you what this looks like. I know it may seem strange to see these pictures on the screen, but this is very, this very much gives us the idea of what may have been going on in those days. It's a market street. It would have been filled to overflowing with Passover going on. There would have been so many people indifferent, not realizing what was happening as Jesus attempts to drag this heavy wooden beam down this very narrow street. I've had the opportunity to walk. It's actually a little bit uphill. I cannot imagine having gone through what Jesus has already gone through and then just trying to walk normal through the crowds who would have been so disrespectful, who would have been mocking, who would have been absolutely merciless, and finally he just can't go any further. So they grab a traveler named Simon and they force him, the Roman soldiers force him to carry that cross the rest of the way. We don't know how far this whole journey may have been, a mile and a half, two miles, with people all around, but led beyond the gates of the city to this place called Golgotha. I want to show you what this looks like so you can visualize and consider this as well. You'll see the markings in the side of this hill. You know, before a lot of erosion has taken place over the years, I've seen some pictures of what this looked like centuries before, and it's referred to as the place of the skull. You might be able to picture a skull in your mind's eye as you look at it now, but this particular hillside looked even more like that 
years ago. And I don't want you to picture Jesus being put on the top of this hill, not three crosses on top of the hill, but rather the cross at the base of the hill. Today, it's a bus stop, but the Romans like to crucify along the road for maximum humiliation. And so Jesus is hung on a cross that day with a sign meant to mock him, this is the king of the Jews. They put nails through his hands and his feet. We know that there is a significant nerve that comes from your, out of your hands and, and through your wrists, and he would have been in excruciating pain the entire time. You see, the Romans were going for maximum torture, not just execution. And Jesus, from 9 a.m. on that Friday morning, he hung there. And the first words out of his mouth, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would you just take a moment and picture Jesus in your mind's eye? And would you understand that he was not only providing forgiveness to those who hung him on the cross that day, but to you as well? A few other words are spoken by Jesus in these first three hours, and then around noontime, a supernatural darkness covered the earth. Jesus cries out at, at some point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Certainly, God the Father had turned his head, unable to look at the sins that we have all created, all of humankind, you and me, had heaped upon him. And then just one time, he is offered a drink and he takes it. He says, I thirst. He takes a drink because he's got something to say. Right before his last breath, right before he declares, Father, into my hands, I commit your spirit, he says, it is finished. It is finished. The work that he came to do for you and for me has been done. And then they took him off of that cross and they led him to what was, we believe, a nearby garden tomb, wrapped his body in linen. They laid him in a tomb that had never been used before. Today, with all that's going on in the world, I want to challenge you to look at Jesus. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he is today. But before we get to Sunday, we remember what he did for us on that Good Friday. Would you look at him? Standing in front of the crowd, there with Pilate in the background. Would you look at him, the beating that he's taken? Would you look at what happens with the hands through, with the nails through his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns? Would you look at him today? And then would you join us this Easter as we go back to the garden tomb and we look again and find that it's empty 
And that's why we can call today a Good Friday.